Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. We just, we're real people and we're transparent. And and I also think that's part of our success with our clients and what draws them to us is because we're relatable and we'll talk about real life stuff as much as design and we're equally passionate about both parts of our lives. On this episode, I'm speaking with Aaron Rosseth and Ann Fritz, partners at ESG Architecture and Design in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Aaron joined the company 15 years ago and was made president in 2017. Anne joined ESG as an intern in 2004, the same year as Aaron, and has since become the Director of Interior Design. ESG's foundation is built on strong relationships paired with an open-minded and creative outlook. The firm recently began the Minneapolis-based North Loop Green 3 project, a third phase to the North Loop Green project that will include elements of housing, office, and retail. A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please share this track and others on your social accounts to people you think would be interested. Also, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is how we grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is driven by authentic form and function. We're a design and technology studio working on tools and platforms to improve the urban space. You can find out more online at authenticff.com. And finally, we wanna hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas of who else we should speak with to podcast at authenticff.com. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. So Aaron and Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. We're excited to be here. Thank you for having us. So one thing that is specifically unique about this episode is that it's the first time that we're having two guests on the show from the same group. Certainly how you found yourselves working together isn't a one-size-fits-all story. And I would like to start with that. So Anne, tell us a little bit about your early days that has kind of led you to ESG. Well, I've been here about 15 years now, and Aaron and I started within six months of each other. And I think looking back when we first met, I was in my early 20s, you were mid early 30s. <laughs> and I don't think we ever thought we'd end up where we are. I grew up born and raised in Minnesota. I had kind of the idyllic upbringing. My mom was a high school English teacher. My dad worked for 3M, a Minnesota-based company. I was a classically trained ballerina. My brother was an Eagle Scout. We had the corner lot with the dog in the suburbs, that whole deal. But I always, always loved art. Um, And I always looked at space differently. So it's kind of as a natural career path for me. I would steal my brother's castle Lego set and build the entire thing before he even got a chance to open the box. I would design where all of the rooms went in our blanket forts. I could care less about what Barbie and Ken were doing and rearranged all of my friends' furniture in their dollhouses. <laughs> if I got grounded, I use it, use it as an opportunity to redesign my entire bedroom before I was let loose by my parents. And when I went to college, I prided myself in having the best dorm room on campus with three sources of incandescent light and throw pillows. I'm sure my roommates hated me. So uh, it was always kind of a a natural progression. Where did you end up going to school? I went to a very tiny private liberal arts school called Graceland University in Lamoni, Iowa, where I majored, uh, I have a bachelor in arts in in painting. And then I went on to school for interior design after that. Wow. And and did any of your design 
expertise particularly blossom while you were in school? I know you mentioned kind of having that interior design knack, but did anything else surface at that time? I think then I was really focused on just the fine arts in general, color, composition, all of those things, art history I loved. But after college, I went to Italy and lived there for a summer and studied interior design, architecture and landscape architecture and how they all relate within a city. And that's when it really sunk in that I wanted to make that a career. Hmm. Aaron, let's pause and and jump over to you. Where did things get started for you as as a young person? Sounds good. Well, I certainly worked on blanket forts as well. I wasn't grounded, I don't think, as much as Anne. But um, I was uh, I was raised in Wausau, Wisconsin, a small town in central Wisconsin. It's a farm town that has grown up many folds since I've been there uh, over 20 years ago. My father was a Lutheran pastor. My mother was a kindergarten teacher. And my two brothers really took their careers in my parents' direction in terms of teaching. They're both professors now, so I was a little bit of the black sheep. But early on, I was in a a small neighborhood that was developing housing very quickly. And there was a local company called Wasa Homes that would build prefabricated unitized pieces of housing and fly them in or, or truck them in and then fly them in and and kind of staple them together. And I watched this from year like five years old through my entire upbringing. And not only our little community of maybe 20 to 30 houses, but all over Wasa, that was an incredible influence. So the Lego phenomena of just kind of houses coming together was uh, certainly a huge influence in what I was looking at. Throughout my upbringing, I, I went to the University of Minnesota for undergrad and grad. It was a very theoretical school, which I loved at the time. I thought I was much smarter than I am now, <laughs> or, or than I think I am now. But it was a great way to open my eyes to concepts and ideas that the world was much bigger than Wasa, Wisconsin. And so during that time, I had the opportunity to travel a lot. I went around the world several times which was another huge part of certainly my upbringing and looking at the world a little bit differently. Yeah, and, and having the, that opportunity to travel quite a bit while also having that theoretical background, the schooling of University of Minnesota. Do you recall a specific time period or, or maybe a moment in time where some of the clarity came about with regards to architecture? Is there anything that you can pinpoint or look back on that you can say, yeah, that was the that was the time period for me. I think there were many moments. I didn't just travel Europe. I traveled Asia and many other places that were completely different from each other. And what it did, similar to the liberal arts education of the undergrad at the University of Minnesota, is just open my mind to something that I had never experienced in a small little town. And coming from, again, a Lutheran pastor and a kindergarten teacher, we didn't have a lot of money growing up at all. And so besides history books and, and great art books, that was about the extent of what I, I knew about the rest of the world until I started to travel. So the and I think we'll talk about this later in this podcast, but one of the things that has influenced Anne and I so much and the rest of the partners in this company is that sort of worldly experience. I think that we love to, when we, we, we go to different cities, for our work and for our craft, 
we love to tour it and love to get to know it, which is incredibly important to the ultimate building projects and stories that we tell with our buildings. And so I think just early on traveling and getting to know people that were so different than me opened my mind in a way that I'm incredibly grateful for. Yeah. And how about Anne for you? When did you feel like interior design was the path? I mean, I guess if we take a step back to what you just told us, maybe it was when you were building forts and, and Legos and working with your your kind of childhood toys. But was there a was there a moment for you where you thought, okay, this is it. This is this is what I'm gonna be doing? I really think it was post college. Well, A, when you tell people you're a fine arts major, they all say, well, good luck making money at that. <laughs> you know, so after school, I went back and I went to a technical college. So unlike Aaron's more theory-based design study, it was very industry hands-on based for interior design. And I absolutely loved it. But I think Italy is the, is the experience for me that really triggered that. So I loved how the context of anything in Europe relates to the things around it. So the piazza is connected to the palace or the church or the cathedral and the, which is on access with the gardens straight back, which is on access with the main central part of the city. It's just everything is laid out for a reason. And I think that's one of the things that ESG really does well with our projects as a whole. Um, we feel like architecture should be contextual. Anybody could design an amazing worthy building that's an icon that stands out on its own. And that's one way to look at it. But I think we maybe it's our Midwest humble <laughs> upbringing, but we lack that ego. And instead, we want to do what's right for the city. And, and I think the exterior and interior should talk to each other. And so that just are, all started to really make sense. The more I traveled outside of little St. Paul, Minnesota, or Lamoni, Iowa, or in Aaron's case, Wausau, Wisconsin. I think he's right. We, we always really look to the lo- locations we're in to speak to us and inform our designs. Yeah, I feel like that's a really strong segue into something that I've noticed a lot about the two of you and, and the work that you do is the the emphasis on the greater perspective and the greater context of a project. And that really trickles down into the relationships that you have with your clients and the relationship building. And it seems like that's a really unique part of the work you do, but also the, the, the part of your friendship that stands out is just how similar the two of you are in terms of thinking about that and approaching that in a similar way. And I think you've told me on a couple of occasions, and I've actually heard this on a few occasions, that you actually get to the point where you begin to finish, finish each other's sentences at this point. And so with that in mind, I'm, I'm curious... How, how you met and how closely did your careers begin at ESG? Because I think that's kind of a fun story. So Anne, how about we start with you and, and how you found yourself in ESG in the early days? Sure. I started here as an intern in 2004. And I believe I started in November and Aaron started the summer just before. So within months of each other, he quickly moved up the ranks and is now president of our company. And before I knew it, I'm now the interior design director and we're both partners with a very talented group of people. But we worked on a condo project together. The first project we both ever were assigned to at ESG, we were on the same team. And I think we just started to kind of look out for each other. We became quick allies. We speak the same language. We've been through a lot, I think, with the recession and just also just general growth in our careers and both being the kind of 
success-oriented people that always want to do more. I don't think we're ever satisfied. We always want to grow. We we can't help ourselves. We really care about what we're doing and we love people. And I think the way we were raised, Aaron always tells me, and it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Because his mom always told him that. And I call him out on that as well. We keep each other in check. We've become really good friends because we've had to hit the pavement together. We give, we speak the same language and we complete each other's sentences because we pitch together so often, mm. especially coming out of the recession. So I've spent countless hours in the backseat of an Uber with Aaron listening to him on conference calls. <laughs> and he has heard me do pitches over the phone in the Sky Lounge at the airport. We've traveled together with our families. I hang out at his cabin with our kids and spouses. So I think there's a lot of respect and camaraderie, but also this kind of central DNA that we we both share. But it's not just us. I think our partners as a whole, it's just a part of the ESG culture and the leadership here that we just we're real people and we're transparent. And and I also think that's part of our success with our clients and what draws them to us is because we're relatable and we'll talk about real life stuff as much as design. And we're equally passionate about both parts of our lives. Mm. And let's rewind just a, a couple of years and tell me what was the makeup of your team like when you when you started out in your early 20s? Actually, I was hired as the intern and there was only one other interior designer at the time who was my boss. And we grew quickly because of the housing boom to have about nine interior designers. Then the recession hit and I slowly watched the people I became to love and respect pack their desks and in brown boxes, you know, a couple at a time every few months. And our firm went from 93 people to 21 in a matter of two years. And I know we weren't alone in that as our industry all suffered through the recession. Mm. So our interiors team went from nine to one. And that was just me alone. I was pregnant with my second baby and kind of wondering what was next. And luckily, we had enough of our toe in the water in the public sector where we of projects where we were able to kind of sustain a team of just me plus one other person to help on contract. And then as I got back, we started to grow, we started to diversify, we started to look at things in other states and look at other market sectors outside of housing and hotels, but also office. And our interior design team grew because I kept needing help. And I kept saying, I'm going to hire people that are smarter and more talented with more experience because I don't have any time to train them. So I would kind of raise my hand and shoot off the red flare gun and get more help. And now we have 34 interior designers, including a design partner for myself. So there's two of us that co-direct our team and we're rocking it. It's been great. Right. Yeah. Now that's a, that's a huge growth trajectory and, and starting from humble beginnings, certainly. And Aaron, how about you? When you, when you look back at that time period in the early 2000s, what was that induction process or what was that evolution process for you coming into ESG and learning the team, learning the ropes, and certainly becoming fast friends with Anne? Well, uh, starting in the early 2000s, I was watching ESG from another company do amazing projects. There's some projects that were built during that early time, even before Anne and I came to ESG, that were kind of showstoppers in Minneapolis, or in other words, they they were creating a whole new kind of architectural vocabulary that no nobody had seen in the Twin Cities. 301 Kenwood and several others, which were early condominiums, are still showing 
as good as they did the first day they were built. Just amazing landmark legacy projects. And I thought to myself while I was at a different firm, you know, I, I want to be part of something like that because it was so transformative. And then relating it back to, you know, my early history of traveling and whatnot, like that's what I was seeing around the world. So I wanted to get to know this company, which was the reason that ultimately I ended up uh, coming here. But in terms of uh, Anne and I, we do have a special relationship. Her family is like as close to my family as we're incredibly close together. Our kids know each other and play together well. But that isn't just Anne and I. That is true for many of our partners and many of our employees and many of our clients. And I think we talk about it a lot of what is important to us and what we value about ESG and the company. And and if you asked of the 20 partners we have, uh, most of them, I think, would have that in their answer in terms of it's about relationships. And to us, the it's just we're not here that long on earth. And mm-hmm. we better make the most of it while we're here. And being surrounded by people you love and care about is incredibly important. The work can always be there and the work is equally important. But there's something special that comes out of deep, close relationships while you're developing it. Most of our products are between $30 million and $100 million that take a year and a half to three years to build. So if you're surrounded by people during that time that you're not getting along with, it's just toxic and life isn't worth it, in my opinion, if it goes that way. Yeah. Let's talk about something that has to do with relationships and and certainly something that has to do with the evolution of of a business. And we've alluded to it a bit so far, but I want to jump into the deep end of the ESG first and second generation, as I will call it. And I think this is a really unique aspect and unique story to ESG in how the original partners built the business and now how the business is, is moving forward. So Maybe we start with you, Aaron, and, and walk us through kind of how that team has evolved over time and, and what that looks like today. I know that there's quite a bit of, of story there, so I'd love to jump in. That sounds good, Chris. Anne started to talk about it a little bit, but in 2005, which was our previous peak, we were at 93 people. And when uh, I still remember the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed, we had Within two weeks of that coming on the news, we probably had 50% or more of our projects go on hold and the projects ended up dying. And and then uh, it became 75% and 80 and 90%. And it was an incredibly scary time that one of the founding partners, David Graham, told me during this period, Aaron, and this is post-rationalization or post-understanding, but that uh, I received a PhD during that time of how to run a company. And I certainly think of it that way now of the lessons learned. But jumping back during those peak periods, I talked about some legacy projects that were built and incredible things that were transformative to Minneapolis and many other cities in the Midwest. David and Mark really built their careers in the Midwest. Uh, They were very successful at it, but during the recession, We kind of rolled up our sleeves and did what we could to find projects just to keep ourselves alive. But shortly after that, as we started to find some successes and the economy got better, the partners, we had several retreats and, you know, everyday discussions about what we could be doing differently and what kind of lessons learned we learned from the recession. And so 
one of the discussions was whether or not we go after a different market. So our core markets are office, hotels, and residential, and all in varying levels within each one of those. So we do everything in office from tenant improvement to large multi-million, hundred million dollar office buildings ground up. Within residential, we'll do anything from senior housing to student housing to market rate housing to condominiums, co-living, etc. And then in hospitality, I think we've done every brand that's out there, including unbranded hotels, which are Anne and my favorite things to do. So anyway, we said those three core markets are we're really good at it. We have a brain trust of partners and employees that love doing it. And the Midwest knows us very well within those markets. So we said, okay, instead of going in through K, into K through 12 or hospitals or something that we didn't know and making a big gamble of hiring an expensive principal to come in and run that market for us, we said, Let's just stay in our core markets. We know them well, we love them, we're passionate about them. They inform each other. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit, but we we stuck to kind of our core designs and, and uh, projects that we've done. But we said, let's go geographic. So earlier, Ann was talking about how we got on a plane and we really, for whether we liked it or not, we spent lots of hours and we got to know each other very well during that time. But coming out of the recession, we had a, a early goal of just getting into one or two or three other states that, again, our founding principles weren't necessarily in. And thankfully, we found a lot of success for it. We had a goal a few years ago of trying to reach 50% of our revenue outside of the Midwest or Minnesota in particular. And we reached that in 2018, about two years before that goal of 2020. So we're really, we're very proud of that and it continues to grow. I think we're in 28, 29 states right now and counting. Yeah. And, and for you, how did you experience that period as well? I mean, from an interior design perspective, it sounds like your team went from very few to, to quite a few nowadays. But Talk to me about that that growth period and what that looked like for you as you were building your part of the team too. Well, I think design has changed where the inside matters just as much as the outside and the structural engineers and the civil and the landscape. There's so many people that work to make a building happen, but people want an experience. Like Aaron said, whether it's office or hotel or, or multifamily housing, everybody wants their hotel to feel like they're favorite cool like restaurant bar or their that favorite bar to be in their office lobby and their lobby to be as comfortable as home and vice versa. So there became a new importance or strength or value for interior design. And I think when I first started here, ESG didn't have the history of the talented interior designers that we have today. And our interior design team has helped shape what a client can experience, what a user can experience when they walk into one of our buildings. And our architectural team and leaders like Mark and David that Erin mentioned really took hold and, and value that. And I think old school architects stereotypically may kind of think of interior designers as, as a separate class or a step down or not as important or just dare I say the word decorators. We hate that. Don't call us that. We get really mad. <laughs> um, but I think 
they value that and they see it as value add and an asset to our projects and also another revenue source. So that has been huge. And I think I've been in meetings with David and he'll, David Graham, the G, he'll say, it's all about the interiors, you know, that's where things are going. And and he used to talk more about the architecture and I think he loves both. But the fact that he now sees both as a really important part of what we do has been huge. And, and we owe so much to Mark and David. They, like Aaron said, they created this amazing platform for us. And they always just say, just do what's best for ESG rather than just do what's best for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we look at it as we start to make decisions moving forward, not only for our current set of partners, but also the staff that will someday step into our shoes. We hope that the transition is as graceful. Mm. Yeah, and and that is actually another unique aspect of ESG. Let's talk about that, the, the generational shifts. And one of the things that is kind of cool about the the now is that you and your leadership team is collectively beginning to carry the torch, so to speak, right? So it's currently being handed off to the new leadership, moving kind of from generation one to generation two. And and you were alluding to, you know, one day that'll be generation three. Why is that so unusual in the industry? Well, I'll start. It is unusual. We have many examples in the Twin Cities area that not only isn't going well, but coming out of the recession, a few literally imploded because either they weren't able to get organized during the recession or or literally it was just an unfortunate time where people were at the end of their careers and they did they didn't do any transition planning early on in the company. And we started it about 10 years ago and Mark Swenson, the S of ESG is in his 70s and David is in his mid 60s, the G of ESG. And the E unfortunately died early on when they both started the company. So, and there were other partners as well that were in the their six, late 60s, mid 60s that were part of this 10 year conversation. Anyway, long story short is David and Mark were open to it from day one in terms of Mark always, one of the lines he always says is we could have sold the company tenfold to some asshole in Boston, but we decided to um, keep the family going. And so it's very important for them that their legacy is not just about cash and cashing out. It's about what they've done to kind of instill values and design discipline and design principles in our company in a way that all of us have inherited and believe in as much as they did and are taking it in in a new direction. Uh, So we are very proud of that. One of the reasons that it happened just in comparison to several other companies that aren't making it happen are David and Mark weren't overly greedy with where our stock value was. We aren't a publicly traded company, it's all an internal stock but we do our own valuation and vote on it each year. And thankfully, because they knew that they weren't gonna sell it to somebody else and they knew that it would be difficult for architects and interior designers to buy into a company that is expensive, they kept it artificially low. During that time, there was other ways of compensation that we were able to take care of them, so to speak. But nevertheless, big picture, they allowed stock to be lower than the value, again, of some Boston firm or some other company buying us out. So it's very fortunate for us. Any one of us probably could have started our own company because we all have a 
kind of a dire entrepreneurial uh, mentality about the way that we exist and the way that we run the company now. But it wouldn't have had the kind of richness that it does because of what we learned from Mark and David and where we're taking it. So not only the richness, just the intellectual kind of knowledge and projects and, and everything else, we're very fortunate because of it. And you, I think you mentioned once that you feel like the baton has been passed and it feels like you're li- literally running with it down the track. And I'm, I'm curious how this transition has felt for you from an interior design perspective and a storytelling perspective, knowing that so much of ESG's work is very story rich and experience focused. Well, I do feel like we're running at times, but we love that. I, I think <laughs> if we were meandering, we'd get bored. So that's what's so exciting is there's always a new story to tell. Every project is a story. And it all for us is based on where the project is located, the demographic, the history of the site or the history of the building, if it's a renovation. Also the program that we're trying to achieve, what the client's goals or dreams are, or the client's personal story that may need to be woven in. People want to experience a space. They don't realize it, but when they they do, they notice it. They may not be able to explain or articulate it, but I think it's pretty cool that we get to really almost control or manipulate how someone feels the minute they touch a door handle or the minute they walk into a lobby or that even in an elevator cab, that those details and lighting and thoughtful decisions influence someone's day. And we could be generic and just have pretty things that match that are applied to surfaces, or we can be thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I think layered nuances. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, and, and I, I want you to dig into that a little bit, if you don't mind, because I feel like that right there is sort of the the tip of the iceberg as to why ESG does differentiate itself so well against others out there. When it comes to that approach and thinking through those experiences, the the touching the door handle for the first time, for example, why are you different or how do you approach things differently? I think it really comes down to us being good listeners and being open to what our clients are asking, but then also doing our job as designers and pushing them to be open to something that they don't even know they want yet. We really care about just looking at at a project differently and thinking about how can we make this meaningful? How can we make this thoughtful? Why am I making this decision? If you have a end goal or a story or a some design pillars that you're working around. I think it makes it easier to make even the hard decisions when we have to cut things because of budget, when we have to make a fast decision because something is discontinued. If we can go back to those core principles of why we started, then you don't have a design that gets vanilla or watered down. Mm -hmm. Aaron and I look at projects all over the country, as well as a lot of our leadership, whether it's housing or hotels or office. And, And as you tour those comps, it's interesting to feel like, you know what, we got this, like there's, we can handle this. We do it differently. I call it prepackaged luxury. When I walk into a lot of these other projects, they're nice. They hit the price point. I'm sure they meet the client's performa. They're, they're beautiful. They're, they've got quality materials, but there's, there's no soul. And I think that's what really makes us excited about our jobs and makes every project that race or that sprint to the finish line since we're running with our baton. It's it's why we get up and we can't wait to start. I made an early note and you mentioned the phrase purity of purpose. 
And I want to know how you maintain that purity of purpose when you're asked to shift gears or when the project scope changes. How do you maintain that, that focus? I think it's a designer's job to remind a client where they started or why they started or why they called ESG in the first place and picked up the phone. Our job is to constantly go back to the beginning and then carry that story and that link all the way through. And that's what makes a design have that purity. I think if we continue to shift gears and here's a cool idea, or I saw this at a trade show, or I saw this at a hotel I just visited, or then we just have a smattering of every good idea stuck in one room and people don't even know where to be. I always use my ballet background when I explain this to clients where clients all the time will send me pictures like, isn't this cool? Can we use this? And I always say, put it in your back pocket and save it for the next one. (laughs) And I talk about how there can only be one prima ballerina. If there's a ton of soloists on the stage, the poor guy in the light booth has no idea who to focus on. And, you know, every space has to have that kind of hero moment or that that solo in the spotlight and the core dancers are there to support the soloist. And, you know, we don't want to make the lighting guy want to quit his job. Yeah. I love that analogy. (laughs) That's a great analogy. Aaron, what else would you add to that in terms of the, uh, the approach for the firm? And, and obviously ESG has has started to really stand out amongst architectural firms in the country. and, And obviously you're much more than just an architectural firm, but, but what would you add to that? Yeah, Chris, I think that for me, it goes back to the beginning questions that you asked of both Anne and I. I Thankfully, because of our educations, we were taught to think openly and we were taught to think critically. And so a liberal arts education does that. You know, you never really know where you're going or how you could apply that to a specific job, but it forces you to think open-minded and abstract and critically of, of everything. And so one of the things Anne does and Melissa Metzler, another one of our, our partners and myself, and is uh, try to stay abstract in the very beginning of a project. And so we create storylines or storyboards, both of the interior and exterior in a way that we reference lots of precedent images and lots of specific events or areas throughout the world that are important to us and, and ultimately are, are important to the client when they kind of are part of this dialogue and help develop this story with us. And then like you were asking Ann earlier, when we get into trouble or we get into a value engineering point of the project where we can't afford specific things, it's really important that we go back to that abstract story that we originally started with and say, okay, yes, we we can't afford quite what we're designing or is on paper right now. But what was the original story? And why was that important and what we, what can we do at this point to bring it back to that? And so I guess as a theme for this overall conversation, the uh, storytelling part of it and creating contextually rich environments has to do with really listening, as Ann said, but going back to it constantly. And our partners and our employees and clients are completely bought into that. And so Again, like a liberal arts education, sometimes you aren't sure where that progression or ultimate milestone of a building is mm-hmm. uh, until it's really built. But you can certainly post-rationalize it once it's done. Yeah. Let's actually wrap some context around those ideas. And, and if, if you don't mind, let's point to a project that you're particularly proud of 
that maybe incorporates uh, all of these things, all of these wheelhouses that you've mentioned on the podcast so far. Is there one in recent history that comes to mind that's worth pointing to that we can also link in the show notes for listeners to take a look at? We certainly can, Chris. We have a very good example. It's called North Loop Green 3. And it's the third phase of a project in the North Loop of Minneapolis that we recently won. Uh, It was actually a a national um, RFP that went out to many companies that were much bigger and arguably more qualified than us. And there's, there's many reasons that we wanted that I'll talk about. But it is, uh, it's kind of a culmination of everything that ESG does. It's urban, it's incredibly context rich, it's transit oriented. So there's, there's a, a place in Minneapolis where this site is where all of these transit features of Minneapolis converge into one location and just happens to be this location. And so when we go back to kind of the core design disciplines and design principles that our founding partners, Mark and David in particular, kind of instilled in all of us. It's about how pedestrians relate to buildings and how that whole pedestrian experience, the vehicular experience, all multimodal pieces kind of come together. And the North Loop Green 3 uh, project is kind of, again, the culmination of that. Um, it also happens to take care of all the food groups of ESG. So it's housing, which also has a hospitality component to it. It's a short-term stay component, which is a massive disruptor in multifamily houses in a positive way. And then uh, office and retail. So it's everything that we do kind of in one project. And what what would you add to that as far as excitement around North Loop Green or maybe even some uh, information on where we could learn more about North Loop Green? I think for us, when we found out we won that project, We literally rolled out the champagne bottles and popcorns (laughs) for the whole office. Um, It is definitely the dream project. And I think we're all really excited that it'll be a signature thing for ESG and also for the client, for the city. When you're sitting at Target Field watching a Twins game, if you look down the third baseline, we're disrupting the skyline right there, just Mm. beyond. It's pretty cool to, to know that we're doing that, to drive through a city and say, look, kids, mommy designed that or worked on that. That's pretty awesome. Chris, when we won the project, we uh, sent a string of text to our partners and the key employees that were part of the project. And I've never seen a longer kind of string of massive emoji uh, <laughs> excitement. It was, it emoji was really, excitements. really, really fun. One of our founding partners, Mark Swenson, wrote me in that text string and he said, do you realize where this is taking ESG? And then he said, dot, 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 to a whole nother level. So for us, it's uh, it's wonderful that it happens to be part of kind of the transition from our first generation to our second. And so it's it's symbolic in that way. And it's exciting to see where, you know, we can take that history and, and development that has happened for so many years that has kind of come to this point for all of us and uh, take it to the next chapter. As we begin to wrap up, I, I want to come full circle and, and just note how much of a theme seems to come out in terms of clients being friends, relationships being so positive. Certainly, Aaron and Anne, the two of you have, have grown into such a great friendship and included your families in that. I want to hear from you before we start to sign off here, what you think is coming next for ESG? What are you most excited about looking forward? I would say, you know, we're looking forward to building our new home, our new office. 
which will be in the North Loop Green project. Uh, that's going to be pivotal and really exciting. And it will also kind of time out with that transition of the new leadership moving forward and really creating an environment that really speaks to who we are today, building off of what was founded by Mark and David and our founding partners. I think that we are thrilled to continue that that really rich, deep relationship-based approach that they started and that we've just continued. I think people don't want blazers and shoulder pads and architects with big egos and prima donna designers. They they want people that are genuine with big hearts that are passionate, that care about what we do. And that passion and that genuine quality comes through. And, and when we look to hire and grow new employees, or even when we look to grow our client base, we look for that connection, that, that relationship-based person-to-person connection. And that, I think, is what makes us different. And that is what makes our work really stand out. And that's what we're going to continue to pursue in the future. Mm. Yeah, you said it very well. And Aaron, anything to add for for you there? And she said it very well. The two, <laughs> the, the two things that I would add to it is North Loop Green 3 is a stepping stone for the types of projects that we want to do around the United States. We all believe, all of the partners especially believe that mixed uses of all programmatic kind of types in architecture and interior design, the future of our cities. It's not just singular object type architecture that is going to uh, make our cities rich. And so back to the sort of the education and starting of our beginnings and where we're going, the richness of any city is is where we all come together, where we live, work, and play, literally. Although that's a little cliche, it's true, and ESG does it. The second thing is now it's time for us to sort of focus and organize ourselves in terms of the next generation, uh, become as recession-proof as we can through the diversity of ge- geographic locations, et cetera. But then ultimately, it's our turn then to pass the torch as well. So bringing up young staff and young employees to uh, eventually take over our positions is is the ultimate goal. Thank you both so much for joining us today on the podcast. Clearly, you have great experience. You have great worldviews that you bring to the table at ESG. And it's been a pleasure hearing that story. With both of you having so much experience and insight, this is one of my favorite questions, and, and I'm, I'm thankful I, ha- I get to have two answers today. Who else should we be paying attention to that you all are inspired by or you feel like is doing groundbreaking work? I would say more recently, I've been so inspired by the younger staff. They blow us away daily, and we are so lucky to have some of that talent in our office. And the, the tools that they can use, the technology, the way they're able to speak about design, it makes me feel really comfortable that we're leaving this firm someday in really capable, good hands. They blow us away daily and knock it out of the park. It's it's amazing to watch. Chris, unfortunately, uh, like we uh, had talked about earlier in the podcast where Ann and I answer each other as uh, <laughs> Uh, questions or answers. My answer is the same. The employees that we have and the younger ones especially are just blowing us away. And I'm so excited for the future of them. Hopefully they stay with ESG for their entire careers. But even if they don't, they will transform this city once again. Aaron and Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. Let me roll out the red carpet, ask you what you're up to and where the the world can find you online. Feel free to give any shout outs or links that people can take a look at. Thank you, Chris. We are uh, at 
www.esgarc.com. Also Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. So just look us up, ESG Architecture and Design. Perfect, guys. Thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.